This talk was given by Robert Roxanne Ritchie at Zen Mountain Monastery. Roxanne is a senior monastic in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon. Sometimes it's uh, hard to talk. Um, when I was preparing before Sashen, I got an email from a friend in Australia. You may have heard about it. Um, here's part of it. Probably you haven't been hearing the apocalyptic reports of fires in Australia. It's been crazy. They've even invented a whole new category for ours, catastrophic, which has been the category for days on end, for a blaze heading toward my mother's house. Just today, it miraculously arced around, missing us by half a kilometer, and the roads reopened. On the news, however, there are massive fires still out of control, west, south, north of us, so it's far from over. Horrible reports of abandoned baby possum, koala, kangaroo, and World Heritage Conservation areas completely destroyed. Livelihoods, too, not just in our state, but South Australia, Victoria, and Queensland. It's totally apocalyptic. The combined result of long years of drought, climate change, mismanagement of land, and some psychopaths deliberately lighting fires. There will be another round of heat wave, high winds, um, later this week. When they say heat wave, they're talking 100 degrees and higher. No one has ever experienced anything like this before. Fire so huge, it was creating its own weather patterns. The eucalyptus trees exploding pitch black darkness at noon, whole species of animal now wiped out. It's impossible to give a sense of the scale, scale in terms of actual size, but also in terms of the level of destruction, the loss of wildlife, national parks, livelihoods, lives, and houses. It has made headlines around the world, so you may have heard about it, now, the rains have finally come, and other wild weather, hailstones as large as baseballs, smashing office windows and car windshields in the nation's capital, winds gusting 70 miles an hour, inch of rain in 30 minutes, yet more than 80 blazes 80 were still burning across New South Wales and Victoria on Monday. 
This is real. It feels like the collapse of life on planet Earth. When I read this, I I kind of fell out of my cocoon. I came down from my dreams of heaven in a rush, down from my nice monastery on the mountain. I feel so insulated from all the catastrophes around me sometimes. Cloister is such a thick coat. There's uh, so much I don't know, so little I do. How did we come to this? Feeling it is good, but allowing ourselves to be overwhelmed with depression is not useful. I wonder how the Buddha would meet those fires, these fires. He would say, stand up. We must meet them. They will meet us. In some sense, they are us. There are fires out on the land, and there are fires inside each of us. You know those fires? Those long, hot days of occlusion, of dark smoke, of coughing out, vape, of loneliness, of pain, of confusion, like a rabbit on fire, running everywhere, nowhere, of thirst, of anger, underneath at the winds of our own habits flaring up large and terrible? How they sweep across our lives until, hopefully, burnt and choked with smoke, we turn and begin to ask, how can we begin to find refuge, to cool the world, to calm the raging storms, to rest. We're not. Incredibly, we seem to have the capacity to ignore all that is on fire inside and outside, to persist for lifetimes, burning and burning, and just walk around the embers. But eventually, this lifetime, or the next, or perhaps the 40,000th next, we will all 
feel the heat. And we will all turn eventually. When does it really emerge and become active in our lives? I'm interested in this pivot, this place of turning, and how it happens. Often, it's a kind of desperation, a reaction to pain and suffering that won't quit. Fire, perhaps. Finally, we see it and really feel it. We step on an ember and burn ourselves instead of walking around. This may be the beginning, but it has to do with aspiration, too. With bodhicitta. What is bodhicitta? How does it arise in these dark times, in this dark mind? How do we rise and do what must be done? I rush into this question like a moth into a flame. It may be the essential question, but it seems dangerous to approach it. From from the beginning, the call into the light, into freedom, can be intoxicating, both in the sense of being enthralling and in the sense of being toxic or poisonous. Almost like entering a fire or passionately falling in love. But real bodhicitta is not like this. It is a spontaneous wish to attain enlightenment motivated by great compassion for all sentient beings, accompanied by a falling away of the attachment to the illusion of an inherently existing separate self. In her book on mysticism, Evelyn Underhill says, attraction, desire, and union as the fulfillment of desire, this is the way life works in the highest and in the lowest things. She says, the mystic's outlook, indeed, is the lover's outlook. It has the same element of wildness, the same quality of selfless and quixotic devotion, the same combination of rapture and humility. This parallel is more than a pretty fancy. She says, for mystic and lover upon different planes are alike responding to the call of the spirit of life. But the language 
of human passion is tepid and insignificant beside the language in which the mystics try to tell the splendors of their love. They force upon the unprejudiced reader the conviction that they are dealing with an ardor far more burning for an object far more real. Only this mystic passion can lead us from our prison. Its brother, the desire of knowledge, may enlarge and improve the premises to an extent as yet undreamed, but it can never unlock the doors. If we want to unlock the doors of our prison, free ourselves of our habits of delusion and desire, we need to see the suffering we are dealing with clearly. And we need to study the teachings of liberation. But until we are filled with bodhicitta, we will not be moved to move. Bodhicitta is the wind in our sails. It's what moves us. What moves you? Do you know? What was it that lifted your heavy body from your bed this morning? What was it that pulled on your socks and came down to the dining hall? What is it that brings you into the zendo now? What is it that holds you in that perfect posture that asks you to be so still, so quiet, and to look so closely at your mind? Something mysterious and wonderful, I think. Yesterday, Roshi asked us to consider why Huika stood outside in the snow. Why did he shiver on the edge of life and death in the cold? The teachings say to open the gate of the elixir of universal compassion to liberate all beings. That's all. The basic force behind bodhicitta may be the simple imperative to close the gap that appears to be between ourselves and our world, to repair all the painful separations in our lives. It's like an ache that we cannot deny. It's like one of the fundamental forces of the universe, like gravity. It's our nature to come together. We just want to be intimate with everything. 
with each other, with each moment. So we sit, we concentrate, we enter samadhi, and we feel like we're coming home. But bodhicitta needs to be cultivated. We have all felt it move through us, but where is it now? Where was it when we felt so awfully cold in front of the dead stove on Hosan? Remember? Where was it when we came late to the Zendo? Where was it last night when we couldn't sleep? We need to remember, remember, remember the spark, the spirit of bodhicitta and turn our sails to the wind. We must trim them so they fill full, large, and strong so they can pull this lumbering old boat just so, right on and on and on. Without this kind of mindful attention, we risk becoming becalmed in the doldrums. Sailors avoid the latitudes close to the equator that are called the doldrums or the intertropical convergence zone because of its windless weather. There's no wind down there. In times past, sailing ships were often becalmed for weeks. In the rhyme of the ancient mariner, Coleridge writes about a ship caught in those waters. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath, nor motion, as idle as a painted ship on a painted ocean. Now, we often use the word doldrums to convey inactivity, stagnation, or depression, not what is needed to invigorate and sustain strong practice. What we need to quote my favorite book title, is fresh, present wakefulness and bodhicitta. In his guide to the bodhisattva's way of life, Shantideva's first chapter is called The Benefit of the Spirit of Awakening. The spirit of awakening is his way of referring to bodhicitta. According to him, there are ten benefits of bodhicitta. The first one is the conquest of all great evils. He says, By the power of the Buddha, 
Occasionally, people's minds are momentarily inclined toward merit. But that virtue is perpetually ever so feeble. While the power of vice is great and extremely dreadful, if there were no spirit of perfect awakening, what other virtue would overcome it? The second benefit, he cites, is the attainment of the most sublime happiness. He says, The lords of sages who have been contemplating for eons have seen this alone as a blessing by which joy joy is easily increased and immeasurable multitudes of beings are rescued. They should know. The third benefit is wish fulfillment, he says. Those who long to overcome the abundant miseries of mundane existence, those who wish to dispel the adversities of sentient beings, and those who yearn to experience a myriad of joys should never forsake the spirit of awakening. You got some bad habits? Then you've come to the right place. The fourth benefit, he says, is bodhicitta carries with it a special name and meaning. When the spirit of awakening has arisen, in an instant a wretch who is bound in the prison of the cycle of existence is called a child of the shugatas and becomes worthy of reverence in the worlds of gods and humans. The fifth benefit is the transformation of the inferior into the supreme. Upon taking this impure form, bodhicitta transmutes it into the priceless image of the gem of the Buddhas, so firmly hold to the quicksilver elixir called the spirit of awakening, which must be utterly transmuted. Powerful medicine, good for what ails you. Number six, the value of the precious bodhicitta, so difficult to find. The world's leaders, whose minds are fathomless, have well examined its great value. You, who are inclined to escape from the states of mundane existence, hold fast to the jewel of the spirit of awakening. It is difficult to find, but we have found it here. Number seven, the inexhaustible and increasing fruits of bodhicitta. Just as a plantain tree decays upon losing its fruit, so does every other virtue wane. But 
the tree of the spirit of awakening, perpetually bears fruit, does not decay, and only flourishes. Number eight, the power of protection from great fear. Shantideva says, owing to its protection, as due to the protection of a powerful man, even after committing horrendous vices, one immediately overcomes great fears. Why do ignorant beings not seek refuge in it? We have. Number nine, the swift and easy destruction of great evil. Like the conflagration at the time of the destruction of the universe, it consumes great vices in an instant. This is how we fight fire with fire. In one of the lesser-known history plays titled The Life and Death of King John, one of Shakespeare's characters encourages the king, saying, Be stirring as the time. Be fire with fire. Threaten the threatener and outface the brow of bragging horror. Yes, we must outface the brow of bragging horror. We must confront the fires burning all around us and within us. With the ardent heart of a bodhisattva, we can meet them with enlightened backfires that burn bright and remove the underbrush of desire. St. John of the Cross says, if our spiritual nature were not on fire with other and nobler passions, we should never cast off the yoke of the senses. This is so true. We want to be moved by the spirit of awakening, But how often are we moved by something else? You know, those all-too-familiar motivators, greed, lust, anger, fear, jealousy, pain, etc., etc. We cannot choose bodhicitta over these other powerful and well-exercised contenders unless we intentionally cultivate it, nurture it, feed it. What we feed will grow. What we do not feed will fall away. The tenth item in Shanti David's list says that there are important scriptural citations of the benefits of bodhicitta. For instance, the wise Lord Maitreya taught its incalculable benefits to Sudhana 
in the Avatamsaka Sutra. So, in seeking the benefits of bodhicitta, we know we are in good company. Brilliant stars in the Buddhist pantheon look around. This is an evidence-based practice. It actually works. The sutras document the transformation of thousands of ordinary beings like us. Across the centuries, millions more. We must keep these teachings somewhere sacred. Go there often. Drink. Let the words wash over us, over and over. Memorize them. Feel how they open us, how they move us. This is how to cultivate aspiration. Shantideva says there are two kinds of bodhicitta. Aspiring bodhicitta and engaging bodhicitta. There are lots of reasons to practice. But unless these reasons are our reasons, unless we feel them inside, unless we are moved, we will remain where we are in these all too familiar cycles of habit and pain and confusion of death and rebirth. Aspiring is first and beautiful, but aspiring is not enough. If we want to transform our lives and be of real use in this world, if we want to quiet and cool the raging fires in ourselves and across this scorched earth, we must actually do something. We must practice. We must engage. Shantideva is saying, okay, Now that you have fallen in love with the Dharma, how will you manifest? How will you bring it forward? The next most appropriate thing to do is right in front of us. Evelyn Underhill says that real aspiration shows itself not merely as an attitude of mind and heart, but as a form of organic life. It's not only a theory of the intellect or a hunger, however passionate, of the heart. It involves the organizing of the whole self, conscious and unconscious, under the spur of such a hunger, a remaking of the whole character, 
on high levels in the interests of transcendental life. The mystics are emphatic in their statement that spiritual desires are useless unless they initiate this costly movement of the whole self towards the real. Costly, indeed. In the fourth tower of Inverness, a radio play for voices broadcast over 397 college radio stations back in 1992 and 1993, which is a colorful analog for the evolution of consciousness. A demon who is pursuing the main character with a meat cleaver informs him that there is a price for wisdom. Okay, he says, as he runs around frantically in a room with a locked door. What, what is the price for wisdom these days? The demon screams, your life, and lunges for his neck. She misses, and the hero does eventually escape, but is quite shaken by his encounter. <clears throat> the teachings tell us that although it may appear like we are being chased by monsters inside and out and about to lose everything, in reality, we are being chased by monsters and about to lose everything. Oh my, such terror, such grief, such relief, such joy. Finally, relieved of everything, of all we've been carrying around all these days of our lives, all these lifetimes, we can rest. Then the teachings say, all, everything is returned to us, illuminated. In her talk during Rohatsu, Shoan quoted the prayer of Bodhicitta. May the supreme bodhicitta that, that has not arisen rise and grow. And may that which has arisen not diminish, but increase more and more. This is an aspiration for aspiration. Breath just wants to breathe. Geshe Tenzin Zopa says the first line, may the supreme bodhicitta that has not arisen arise and grow, is discussed in the first three chapters of Shantideva's book. May that which has arisen not diminish is covered in the next three chapters. And may it increase more and more is dealt with in the last four chapters. Shantideva is indeed a champion of bodhicitta. Seems he thought it important enough 
to devote his whole book to it. His book is like a prayer itself. It is a disposition of the heart. It's like asking the Buddha the fundamental and full and free nature of all things. Please reveal yourself. Please. We look up to the sky. We pray. We ask because we want to realize our true nature. To see into the heart of being. But this is only half. The other half is zazen. The whole of it is zazen. It is just sitting quietly and still and not saying anything. Just listening and actually hearing the answer. When we turn from our concerns and ask the mountain or the white winter sky or the half-frozen river or the setting sun or our own mind, please reveal yourself. And when we listen without expecting anything, we don't have to wait very long for the answer. Bodhicitta is the question. Bodhicitta is its own answer. Hongzhi shows the way. He says, I'll end with this. With thoughts clear, sitting silently, wander into the center of the circle of wonder. This is how you must penetrate and study. The practice of true reality is simply to sit serenely in silent introspection. When you have fathomed this, you cannot be turned around by external causes and conditions. This empty, wide-open mind is subtly and correctly illuminating, spacious and content, without confusion from inner thoughts of grasping, effectively overcome habitual behavior and realize the self that is not possessed by emotions. Here, you can rest and become clean, pure, and lucid. This is the way of bodhicitta. Who would not want to enter here? Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org slash media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. 
learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.